Today is the last Sunday of this month, uh, which means next Sunday is the first Sunday of June. We're uh, coming up to halfway through the year already. So it's the first uh, Sunday of the, the month. So Praise Cafe will be on, so you can come a little bit early and grab a coffee and a snack if you like, and afterwards it'll be, be open and we'll have some uh, stay and, and share a little bit more and some, some fellowship, some goodies we'll have prepared and, and all next week. So that's next Sunday, next Sunday morning. Uh, also Wednesday evening, uh, we'll have a Bible study. We're um, still looking at the Holy Spirit and understanding who he is and what he has done for us in, in our lives. We began, we've, we've talked about who he is and what that means uh, about his nature and in our salvation. Now we're looking at how he works in our, our lives daily. We've talked about the uh, indwelling of the Spirit, more particularly this last Wednesday. This Wednesday night we'll be uh, shifting and talking about how he seals us, that great guarantee, and also what it means to be filled by the Spirit. And so we'll be talking about those this Wednesday evening as we continue that study. Now this morning we're, we're coming here into Acts chapter 7. We've got a real, a large chunk of scripture to get through today as we think about it uh, and seeing one of these things. As we've come here to, to the story of Stephen, we're seeing that with Stephen is the well, this is the largest chunk, the largest section of one event in Acts. It's a very important part of, of what Luke has for us to learn, has for us to understand. Now, we're going to read through the whole thing because it is one sermon. We'll take uh, our lessons as we go out of it. But uh, let's read through it together, beginning from verse 1. We're going to read through verse 53 this morning and then glean some truths from it. So Acts chapter 7, and uh, this, of course, Peter, uh, Stephen has been uh, taken and uh, reprimanded to, uh, before the people because of his arguments in the synagogue. It says, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And this goes back to the accusations in chapter 6, which was that he had blasphemed the temple and he had blasphemed Moses. So this is his chance to offer a defense. And verse 2. And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. <clears throat> the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Go out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, and from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, being envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now, a famine and a great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham brought or bought for a sum of money for the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. The next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now, uh, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out again uh, after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back into Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? 
You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found before God, who found before God favor and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophets say, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear the words of this sermon, to learn and to grow from it, to understand more of you, to understand more of what you do in this world and our place in it. We ask, dear God, that the Spirit would take your word, make it alive, make its truth relevant in our hearts, fill us with boldness and encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen. The temple <clears throat> became more than just a presence or a symbol of presence to the Jews. And this is why Stephen was in such trouble, because he was speaking of the temple as if it wasn't as great a place as the Jews had thought it to be. In fact, the, the, the temple in, in the, the Jews in Jerusalem at this time had become the central part of worship. It was the heart of what they believed and what they did. As we begin this section of Acts here, we noted that this is one of the most important events in history. As Stephen has, has argued and he has uh, brought his case in the synagogue that Jesus is greater than the law and that Jesus is greater than the temple. This fills them with, with anger and frustration. So here we see Stephen debating, being accused of blaspheming God and being blas or blaspheming the temple. In one sense, the Jews had, had put God in a box, kind of literally. They, to them, God was at the temple. And it had kind of been that way through their whole life. When, when they built the tabernacle, they had the tabernacle and there was the, the holy uh, of holies there where the, the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And on, on that is where the presence of God was seen. Then they built the, the temple with Solomon and the same. A special room was built. The holy of holies in the temple was one of the most ornate places you could possibly imagine. And that was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was put, which was where it represented the presence of of God. But Stephen argued to these people who saw the temple as the place of God's presence, he argued to them that the temple is not as important as they thought. That the temple is not the place where God is, but rather God is greater than the temple. God is greater than 
the law. He transcends all of this. He transcends the temple. He transcends Jerusalem. He transcends Israel. God is uncontainable. He cannot be held by a place or a person or a people. He is unstoppable in his work. You see, an unshakable faith of Stephen, which we saw last week, and this unshakable faith of Stephen, which he had, comes forth in his message, which he presents here in his defense. And really, it's not until the very end where he starts to defend himself. Mostly what he does is he takes the history of Israel and condenses it a little and gives the, the kind of the, the basics, the main people of Israel that they, they loved, that they adored. And he talks to them what they thought of the law and what they thought of the temple. And he flips the whole conversation around on them. We know the end, and we'll talk about that more later next week when we talk about the death of Stephen. So Stephen is he's unshakable in his faith. He, he is bold and courageous. He is, he is a man who today would be, even by Christians, looked down on because here is a man who can stand in front of people and say, you always reject the Spirit. He's dogmatic and he's firm and he's bold in his belief of Christ and what people need to hear. So this morning we see his unshakable faith in an uncontainable God. There are two competing truths happening here, two realities which are butting up against each other, which cause the problem, which leads to Stephen's death. And these are going to form our two main thoughts this morning. The first is the glory of God. The glory of God is seen and competing or butting up against the glory of God, we see hard-hearted people. And so we're going to look at how these two things compete and how they battle one another this morning, starting with this. What, what Stephen shows us here and takes us through in this history of Israel is that this is a story of the God of glory. And that's how he starts it at, in his beginning. He says in verse 2, and he said, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory this is a story about the God of glory. And in his glory, Stephen reminds us of the glorious promises of God. The glorious promises of God. In verses 2 through 8, he talks about Abraham. And the promises that God made to Abraham, even before he, he moved out of his homeland with his fathers. Stephen is accused of blaspheming God and blaspheming the law. The law. And blaspheming the temple. And actually, he doesn't really defend himself to the end. And I think it seems like he doesn't even get to finish his defense. To me, it sounds like this is a sermon which didn't finish. By the time he got to where he really wanted to get, the people were so angry they end up killing him. So this is probably only half of what he had intended to say, maybe. But it sounds to me like there's more. He isn't finished. So to prove his case... To prove his case that God transcends Israel, that God transcends the, the law and that God, Jesus is better than the law and better than the temple, he goes to their history and he builds his case from their history, from the people they admire most. He starts by drawing them in and identifying with them. So he, he counts himself as one of them when he says, the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. And he speaks of, of, of these patriarchs being ours and, and drawing them in. And then at the end, he flips it and he no longer uses our, but he talks about you. 
but he draws them in and he identifies with them as, as God being the founder of their nation through Abraham. He's going to show them through their own history that God has always had a bigger plan. Always. And from the people they thought weren't, God calls Abraham out of idolatry. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2 and 3 tells us that before God called Abraham, he was in a place of, of idol worshippers, of a family of idol worshippers, and God calls him to himself out of that idolatry. God was present in Mesopotamia, where Abraham was, and in Ur. God called Abraham out of that idolatry to himself. God had a plan, and Abraham was to be part of that plan. So God calls Abraham, and in his call, he makes a promise. Promises that are very important to Israel, even today. Promises that God made to Abraham, which uh, Stephen rehearses here, are important all the way through Israel's history. God promised Abraham several things, including a family and descendants. He promised him a heritage, that his, his family would have a great impact. He promised that this family would grow to be a nation and that this nation would possess a land. These are all promises that God made to Abraham. These are all promises that the Jews that were standing there listening to Stephen said, yes, we believe this. This is, this is true. This is at the heart of who we are. These promises of Abraham. But Stephen is also showing that the promises to Abraham were bigger than Abraham. Your Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses, tells the, the initial time that we see God give those promises to Abraham. But these promises, which God describes, reached out through Abraham to the world. Even the very beginning, when God promised to Abraham, he said that you would be a blessing to all nations. So God's promise from the very beginning was never just about Israel, but it was about moving through Israel to the world. Ultimately, the Savior would come through Abraham and his line. They don't realize it yet, but Stephen is making the case that God is bigger than Israel. He is bigger than the law, and he is bigger than the temple. Stephen reminds us here that as God calls Abraham and made these promises to Abraham, that Abraham believed God. He reminds him that Abraham believed God. He left his home country. He went and he followed God as God asked him, and he followed God in faith. Abraham lived his life in the faith of God's promise. The power of that faith is seen in the fact that Abraham did not see the fulfillment of those promises. Abraham did not see the possession of the land. In fact, by the time Abraham dies, the only thing that he owns in the promised land is a small parcel of land to bury people on. That's it. He does not see a nation or a family, he has one child of promise. Everything that God had promised him, that he had lived for, Abraham dies still believing, but never seeing. Now, as Stephen speaks that to these people, and he says to them, Abraham lived his life believing God, but never seeing him. In their minds, they are all knowing with certainty, we, we are the promise. 
It started with Abraham and God promised Abraham and he never saw it. And here we stand today, the great nation of Israel. So they're seeing themselves and they're understanding themselves as being the fulfillment of God's promise. There is in Stephen's defense here, as he speaks to us about the story of the God of glory, a glorious promise. But he also tells us about the glorious presence, the glorious presence. Here, as we come toward the end of, of Stephen's defense in verse 44, he moves us further towards the end as they get into the land of promise and uh, into to Israel and, and Palestine where they are now. And as they build the temple there. This is where we kind of get this idea where it started to become this idea more so of this God in a box. So far, as they're listening to Stephen, they have nothing to disagree with. They believe everything he said. Yes, we believe what you said about Abraham. Yes, we believe what you said about Joseph. That is all true. Yes, we believe what you said about Moses. That is true. He delivered us. They have nothing to disagree with. In fact, it's that history, what he rehearses for them, they rejoice in. This is who we are. These are our people. These are our fathers. Stephen begins to focus his speech toward the end here. Remember, he's being accused of blaspheming the temple. So for centuries, Jews thought that, uh, about God's presence in terms of the temple, and it's still very important to Jews today. It's why the, they, they go to the wailing war and they pray and they hope. And that's why there's so much tension uh, over the, the Temple Mount now, because the Jews still believe in the hope and the, the, the centrality of the temple to who they are. The temple was the place that represented God's presence. In a sense, Israel, as I said, had put God in this box. But Stephen reminds us God can't be contained in a place. He can't be contained in a place. And he uses some of their favorite forefathers to prove this. This part of Stephen's defense rocks them because he's using their heroes to point out they're wrong. He gives a geographical defense of the vastness of God. That God has always been bigger than Israel. That God has always been bigger than the temple. You see, God didn't find Abraham in Israel. He found Abraham in Mesopotamia. Abraham worshipped and loved God, and Abraham didn't need a temple. That's the point Stephen is making. Great and mighty Joseph, one of their most favorite of forefathers, worshipped God not in Israel, but in Egypt. Not in a temple and not in Israel. Moses, their great hero, the one who gave them the law and built the tabernacle, worshipped God in the desert, not in the land and not in a temple. Temple was never the exclusive place of God. The worship of God is bigger than a place Stephen quotes here in verse 48 from Solomon's prayer of dedication. This is very pointed because Solomon has had the glorious privilege of being able to build a temple for God. And as he prays in dedication to that temple, he says, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples. 
God is bigger than the very problem and soul he could coin. He is greater than that. God can't be contained in a place. Stephen also makes the point about the glory of God here, that God can't be contained in a people. And by this, I don't mean anything about his presence in his people in the indwelling spirit. That's not what we're talking about here. But what I mean is God was never confined to Israel. He had always planned for the gospel to reach the world. For Israel to be the, the light. For Israel to be the testimony of God to the world. Israel was to be the people God used to bless the world. Jesus, in fact, when he left the earth, had just commanded his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Stephen was about to spark the fire that would send this fire of the gospel throughout the world. The kindling was laid. The tensions were laid. Stephen was the spark that needed to send the fire of the gospel throughout the world. And he reminds us through Solomon that God is in heaven and he cannot be contained. His purpose and his work are vast and they are eternal. There is a glorious uh, promise, a glorious presence, and he reminds us that there is a glorious deliverance. Verse 31 through verse 38, he talks to us about Moses. And as he's gone through, not just about Moses, but when he speaks about Abraham, and when he speaks about Joseph, and when he speaks about, about Moses, in, in all of those things, he brings to us one theme that runs through all of it. God is a deliverer. God is a deliverer. This is a theme that runs through. He is a rescuer. He is a savior. It is God's nature to save. It has been his plan from the very beginning to deliver and to rescue. God didn't choose Abraham to make a nation Israel and to save, pardon me, to save them alone, but to choose a nation that could send out the gospel to the world. They were how God would save all of his people. The pattern of Stephen's message is a pattern of God delivering his people. See it over and over again. He comes with, with Abraham, and Abraham had these promises, and Abraham gives us the patriarchs, and through Joseph, God delivers. And through Moses, God delivers. It's this pattern which Stephen puts through. God is a deliverer of his people. He has promised deliverance. Verse 6 and 7 of our text, he says, But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I would judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. God had promised even to Abraham that he would deliver his people out of trouble. This was a promise for all of God's people, and he accomplished that deliverance. Verse 6, which we just read, speaks about them coming into a bondage. And then uh, Stephen shows us that God fulfilled that promise with Joseph. Verse 7 speaks about having been in that bondage, they are delivered out of that bondage, Moses. Moses. 
Joseph and Moses. Both of them, both Joseph and Moses, point to Jesus Christ. And Stephen makes that point in his message here. Every deliverance, every deliverance of Israel before this was to show God delivers his people. Every deliverance was to point us to the ultimate deliverance of Jesus Christ. Moses prophesied of Christ. Verse 37, Stephen draws them in. He's told them all about Moses and they love Moses and they hear the story of Moses and his deliverance. They think, yes, yes. And then he pulls out this great quote of Moses in verse 37. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. That is, Moses said, God is going to send you a deliverer from your own midst. He is sending the Messiah. He is sending the Savior. Jesus is that Savior. The message that Stephen preached is the message we all need to hear. God is is a deliverer we're in bondage to sin and we're in bondage to death and we need rescue jesus is the one god sent to set us free this is why stephen and peter and john and the apostles preached the resurrection and the ascension of jesus christ it's why we preach jesus christ it is impossible for death to hold him. So this is a story of the God of glory. But said there's a competing interest here. It's also a story of a hard-hearted people. A people who reject God in anger. In every instance where Stephen shows deliverance, so in Joseph where he shows deliverance, and in Moses where he shows deliverance, all along every point where he shows deliverance, he also shows rejection that the one who was sent to deliver was rejected. He is building his case, right? And I'll put you to the end because he, he tells us at the end what his case is. Joseph came to deliver. You rejected Moses the first, Joseph the first time. Moses came to deliver. You rejected Moses the first time. Jesus came to deliver. You rejected Jesus the first time. Why did you reject Jesus? You rejected everybody else. Every time God sent a deliverer, the people rejected. In Joseph, we find one reason why they reject. They reject God in anger. It tells us in verse 9, chapter 7, it says that the patriarchs, the 12 uh, or 11, not counting Joseph, uh, were envious and angry of the favoritism that Joseph received. They knew that Joseph had been chosen for a special job. Joseph had done a very good job of making sure they knew that right so there's no we're not saying that joseph is perfect but we are saying they knew that god had chosen him as a deliverer and when joseph came along they rejected him they rejected joseph the first time he tells us they didn't understand god's plan they saw god's blessing on joseph as favoritism and their envy grew into hatred and their hatred caused them to get rid of their brother, hoping that he would die. And people are no different today. We've rejected God's deliverer, and we've rejected God's deliverer, Jesus, in anger. 
We're ignorant of his plan, just like the patriarchs were ignorant of God's plan with Joseph. And we f- refuse to believe his truth. They were angry, just like we are angry at God for exposing our sin. We don't like to be seen for who we are, and so we rebel and we revolt in anger to a God who exposes who we are by our nature. But even in the rejection of of Joseph in anger, God protected his deliverer. What they meant for evil, God used for good, and the second time, Joseph rescues his people. God brings deliverance. They rejected Joseph, but God did not let that be the end. Rejection does not stop God's plan of delivery. God still delivered. They rejected God out of anger. Secondly, we see with the example of Moses, we reject God's authority. Moses comes to deliver, and God had prepared a deliverer in Moses. Moses was uniquely prepared to be a deliverer from uh, Egypt. And they reject him because they don't want to submit to his authority. Who told you that you could be a judge over us, it says in verse 35. We don't want you to rule over us. We don't want your authority over us. Go away. And so it is with us. We don't just live in hatred of God, but also rebellion of God. Refusing to accept his authority, rejecting him as God, we think we know better. But just like he did with Joseph, he did with Moses. The rejection did not stop God's plan of deliverance. He protected Moses and he brought Moses a second time and delivered his people. This all brings Stephen to his great and final conclusion, or at least his his pointed conclusion in verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. God prepared a deliverer, Jesus This is where Stephen drives his point home. Each of these events was leading us to Jesus. From Abraham, before Abraham, God had been preparing the way for Jesus. Israel's history was about Jesus. Jesus was the great promise to Abraham. And just like Joseph and just like Moses, the deliverer was rejected. History repeats itself. Israel believed. And the leaders thought, if Jesus was the Messiah, we would have known. Stephen's argument is, no, you wouldn't. You've never known. You did just like your fathers did. Joseph was the deliverer, and your patriarchs didn't know Joseph was the deliverer and rejected him. Moses was your deliverer and you rejected Moses who was God's deliverer and you think now you're better than your fathers and you knew you didn't know. Jesus was the deliverer and you rejected him. Today we live in the same spirit of rejection in our anger toward God and resentment of his authority we reject his deliverer but our rejection does not stop 
God's deliverance. He protects his deliverer. The rejection didn't hinder God's deliverer. Jesus resurrected and ascended to heaven to reign. He is the great and mighty deliverer every other delivery prepared us for. Like Joseph and Moses, he will come again. In that time, those who truly believe in Israel will believe him again. You can know the freedom that Jesus can give, that he can be a deliverer to you. Believe that he died for our sins. Don't get angry that he exposes our sin, but recognize that he came to give forgiveness for that sin and freedom from the condemnation for it. Believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He can forgive sin because he died for it. He can free from sin because he defeated it. Believe that he is ruling in heaven now. Don't stubbornly cling to your self-righteousness and your pride. Don't sillily cling to our own authority. Recognize that he rules for your eternal good. Submit to him and live. God is a deliverer. So this is a message of hope. It's true that God is uncontainable. No one and nothing can hold him back. He had planned from the beginning to bring deliverance, salvation to all who would believe. Today, that message is as real as ever. God can deliver you. Hard hearts can be softened. We might come to the end of this and we see how angry they get. And we know in the next few verses, they're going to kill Stephen. And we might look at this and say, what Stephen, he, he spoke these things and he just made them angry. And all it did was make things worse. But God can soften the hard hearts. You see, standing there in that crowd is Saul. Saul, who would spend the next while killing Christians, but because of the testimony of Stephen, will have had the seed planted and become the apostle Paul. See, the anger of those that listened here know what resulted in Stephen's death. You know, these are daunting realities. As we present Jesus Christ in a world, the daunting realities are people will get angry. But look ahead a little further and you see more hope. You see the great glory of God. The world may resist but God can't be stopped. God can't be contained. So go out in unshakable faith for an uncontainable God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word preached from one of the great martyrs of the faith shows us such magnificent truth. You are a deliverer. Lord, help us to grasp that truth so deeply in heart like Stephen does, that we are the bold witnesses for you that we ought to be, that we could be. Clinging on to the hope and faith that through our testimony, even in the midst of the, 
the, the ridicule and the trials we may face at times, people 